Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 109 and 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is the dedication and the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple and some of the visitations that occurred in the Kirtland Temple. Not all of them. Many of them occurred that we do not have in the Doctrine and Covenants, but there's a lot of things historically that are happening. Yeah. This is a moment that has been thousands of years in the making, the restoring of keys, the restoring of glories, the restoring of temples on earth. This is a big deal. To dedicate once again a temple on earth is a big deal, and it will be celebrated in heaven and on earth, and there will be majestic visitors that come from heaven, specifically three that we'll talk about in section 110. But clearly, heaven is celebrating just as much as we are on earth at the thought of dedicating a new temple. But before we jump into the actual prayer of dedication, let's get to some of the history that led up to this moment. Yeah. There's some really interesting things that are happening in 1835 prior to the dedicatory prayer, which happened on Sunday, March 27th, 1836. So, for example, in the beginning of 1835, a highly celebrated instructor of Hebrew arrives in Kirtland. His name is Joshua Satius. And in course of time, in the School of the Prophets, many of the brethren take the study of Hebrew very seriously. Joseph becomes very studious in the Hebrew language. In fact, he says that, I am determined to pursue the study of languages until I shall become a master of them, if I am permitted to live long enough. At any rate, so long as I do live, I am determined to make this my object, and with the blessing of God. I shall succeed to my satisfaction. Joseph really wanted to do this, but he also knew that perhaps his time was short. So he spends 1835 studying languages, and then in the spring of 1835, the Quorum of the Twelve is to go on their first mission. They head out in May of 1835, and then in July of 1835, a man by the name of Michael Chandler comes to Kirtland, and Michael Chandler has acquired some mummies that come from Egypt And with those, we have all the stuff swirling around with the Joseph Smith papyri. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with this, with the provenance of what happens to it. But this is the beginning of Joseph asking the Lord, asking questions. And from these texts, the book of Abraham is produced. Even though there are only three sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that come in 1835, you can see there is a lot going on in Joseph Smith's head. We've got languages, we've got Egypt, we've got mummies and scrolls. Building the temple. And we're building a temple. So this is a very busy year. Super busy. So, and and to make it even more busy, in September of 1835, the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants is printed. And so a lot of saints are excited to, to read those revelations. And then he introduces a core group of saints into the first endowment, or what we'll call washings and anointings. That was on Saturday, January 16th. Oliver Cowdery writes this in his diary that he and John Coral, and he's a big deal, we'll come back to John Coral when we get to the 1838 war in Missouri, that John Coral and Oliver met in the home of Joseph Smith and the three had their bodies washed and then perfumed with cinnamon and they confessed their sins and they covenanted to be faithful to God. 
Martin Harris later comes in and he has this experience. This experience is again repeated on Thursday afternoon, January 21st, in the attic of the printing office adjacent to the temple. Now, we know this for lots of reasons. These individuals write it in their diary. Much of the historical information that we're going to give in the show notes, um, it comes to us through the historian Milton Bachman, and he wrote a book called Heaven's Resound, where he's gathered this information from all these individuals and put it in a book that's just really worth your time if you're interested in the Kirtland period. I would say Milton Bachman is a really good source for a lot of this information. And so then later in January 1836, Joseph Smith introduces a second ordinance, second to the washing, and that is the anointing with sacred or consecrated oil. On January 21st, individuals are anointed and many of them have visions. And according to the sources, about 40 men entered the large doors of the nearly completed temple. So the temple is going to be dedicated in March, but in January, it's just about finished. And during this time period, uh, many brethren are anointed. Now, later, the women are going to be anointed, and the washing and anointing today was continued in Nauvoo and and forward in history. Now, at this beginning, this very first start, Joseph brings them together, and he puts them in order. So he starts with the presidencies, and he puts them in quorums, and then according to age, he has them anointed, and then he prays to the Lord, requesting an acceptance of the anointing. And beginning with oldest, the oldest, he then blesses them. And in this blessing, he blesses them with the blessings of Moses and to lead Israel in the latter days and the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is all happening before the dedication of the temple. And part of the reason why I think this is important is because when we read section 109, there's all these references to the Lord's anointed or the anointed servants. And as you read that, we need to know that the people that were in that room hearing the prayer took this literally because they were literally anointed. And this anointing goes way back, way back to the Old Testament, way back to before the Old Testament where the Egyptians are talking about this and they're doing this. And the idea of washing and anointing is we are crossing a threshold. We're going through liminal space. We're going from one status to another And through this washing and anointing, we are becoming different people. And in antiquity, children were washed, and then they were anointed with oil on their eyes, and then they were clothed, and then they were given a name. And these kinds of things are happening in Kirtland, and Joseph slowly, line upon line, laying some of this stuff out. And there's a great symbolism here, because first we're washed. We've washed the world out of us. We've got to wash sin off of us. We've got to wash the carnal nature of man off of us. And then we anoint ourselves for a blessing. Like today, when we anoint the sick, we anoint someone to receive a blessing. So it's appropriate that they were washed and anointed prior to the dedication so that they can go into the dedication and receive a blessing. And that's kind of what we talk about with temples is you've got to wash the world out of your life as best you can and then anoint ourselves to receive the blessings from God. And they come into the temple, and then it's dedicated. Yeah, and during this time of the anointing, Joseph Smith testifies that the heavens were opened, and that he beheld the celestial kingdom and the glory thereof, and then he sees the streets of heaven that they're paved with gold, and he sees 
Adam and Abraham. And he talks about how he sees his brother Alvin and his parents. And I find that interesting that he sees his parents in heaven because they're not dead. They're alive. So a lot of these visionary experiences cross over the rules of time, as it were. But Alvin is dead and he sees him there. And we'll talk about this when we get to 137. But these visions of the heavens opened and angels that are ministering are not just happening to Joseph, but they're happening to other individuals that are participating in these anointings prior to the dedication of the temple. But think about what that means for all of us. The Lord is preparing Joseph Smith for temple and temple ordinances. Seeing Alvin in the celestial kingdom will cause Joseph Smith to say, how did he get there? Yes. How did he get there? Which now opens Joseph Smith up to receive the revelation about the work for the dead, which is the bulk of what we do in the temple. So do you see the Lord just preparing everyone's minds for the temple? And I would suggest that in our lives, we need to do the same thing. As we prepare to enter the temple, the Lord begins to prepare us for the ordinances of the temple. So you just begin to see this whole thing coming about in a marvelously symbolic way for all of us, that the Lord is incrementally revealing things about the temple that allow us to go in there and have the experiences that he wants us to have. I think also it's really good to note that Edward Partridge and Joseph, at least in this time period, are on really good standing with one another because Edward Partridge is there in these January meetings, and he's writing about this. And so in his journals, you can read some of this stuff. I just want to share a couple things here. Uh, Joseph Smith said that the visions of heaven were open to them also. Some of them saw the face of the Savior, and others were ministered to by holy angels, and the spirit of prophecy and revelation was poured out in mighty power. We all commune with the heavenly host. And then Edward Partridge writes this. He says, a number of us saw visions. Others were blessed with the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Oliver Cowdery bore his testimony. He said, it was a glorious scene, too great to be described. And then he wrote, I only say the heavens were open to many and great and marvelous things were shown. I think it's good for us to acknowledge Edward Partridge and Joseph were at odds at times because Edward Partridge was in charge of the Missouri Saints and things weren't working out. So at one point they were at odds, but now he's sharing in these visions with Joseph and Oliver and others. And then he writes, during the evening, more especially at the time of shouting, a number of us saw visions as they declared unto. And so there were multiple visionary experiences happening in January of 1836. But to me, it means so much to see Edward Parchers there. One of the messages of the temple is we've got to heal the differences that we have with people. I think that's a really important message of the temple. And so to me, to read Edward have these experiences tells me that he and Joseph are good. And I think if of all the things we're talking about, that has the most meaning to me. Yep. Those of you who have been to sacred places know that we should have genuine feelings of love, even for the people that we have been at odds with, if we're going to fully participate in the temple. So that's a very significant thing that Joseph and Edward have made reconciliation and that they are on the same team as we dedicate this temple. That's kind of what I see. I mean... You know, Edward is not saying it, but I think by him being there and participating, to me, that's kind of how I'm reading the experiences. And I think it's important for us to also emphasize that Joseph isn't alone in these visionary experiences. Joseph is initiating participatory religious experience. Yeah. So before we dedicate the building, we've got to build this building. And I hope everyone gets a chance to go visit the Kirtland Temple. It is a monument 
to a people's determination to build a house for their God. It may very well be the most expensive building ever built on this planet when you consider the ability of the saints to build it and their poverty levels, and then when you look at the quality of the building they wanted to build and the time period. Considering their lack and this very beautiful building It was a major effort to build. It was a major monument to their God and how they felt about that God, that they wanted to do their very best. They wanted to build a building worthy of his presence. So yeah, the building is going to cost somewhere between forty and $60,000. That's a lot. That debt will weigh on Joseph Smith's mind for a long time. Next podcast, we'll talk about him going to Salem, Massachusetts, because he was just desperate to get the church out of debt. But you can tell this was an enormous cost to build. So, Bryce, there's this story told with with the construction of the temple. And I know some of you are thinking, are they going to talk about the crushed china and the plaster? And how historical is this? And I remember, Bryce, when I was young, I was told that the saints took their best china and we just crushed it and we put it into the plaster. And then I've heard, well, maybe that wasn't historically accurate. And so I just want to present some things from uh, Mark Staker, uh, PhD, cultural anthropology, and he's done some research on this stuff. But he essentially says, yes, there was China in the plaster, but it wasn't the saint's best China. It was used China that had already been broken and had been thrown into the garbage piles. The saints, of course, sacrificed so much to build the temple, but this part of the story is perhaps a little bit embellished. And in fact, this is actually published in the church magazines. I mean, we give you a link in a church magazine where they say, yes, there was China, but no, it wasn't the best. And I actually, Bryce, one time had in my hands a piece of the plaster that had fallen off and I held it in my hands and I held it up to the light. And you can see in the plaster little bits of reflective material I think it's totally okay when you teach the gospel doctrine to say, yes, there was China in there, and it did have this reflection quality, but it wasn't the saint's best China. But it certainly was a sacrifice. It certainly was their effort to, I want to give something, and I want to give what I have to build the temple. And I think that's consistent with what we try and tell with that story. Yeah, we give the Lord our best. Oh, and by the way, Mark Staker even traces the roots of the exaggeration all the way back to 1910. So history is messy. Yeah. Okay, so once the building was built, now we need to dedicate it. Now, this is a marvelous thing if you think about it. If you look at the very end of the section heading of section 109, it says that according to the prophet's written statement, this prayer was given to him by revelation. In other words, the Lord told Joseph Smith what to pray to the Lord. That's phenomenal if you think about it. And it underlies this issue that God knows what temples are about. He knows why we should build them, but Joseph doesn't fully understand why we should build them. So the dedicatory prayer was revealed by the Lord to be read to the Lord as a prayer. And the Lord is saying, this is what you should say in your prayer, which I love. So hear from the Lord's own mouth are some of the reasons why we build temples. As you read through this dedicatory prayer, it reveals some of its purposes. So let me talk about four primary reasons we build and attend temples and why they mean so much to us and why some people are willing to travel great distances at tremendous expense and sacrifice to be in the temple. This is why temples mean so much to the Latter-day Saints. 
In verse 5, he said, Thou knowest that we have done this work through great tribulation, and out of our poverty we have given of our substance to build a house to thy name, that. So here in the very prayer, Joseph is saying to the Lord, which was revealed by the Lord to Joseph, we have built this house that. So may I suggest here becomes one of the main reasons we build temples. I know we think in terms of saving ordinances and being endowed and sealing families, but I love that this one comes first. We have built this house that the Son of Man may have a place to manifest himself to his people. It is a house of revelation. It is designed for us to communicate with God in tremendous closeness. Now, I know God can answer our prayers everywhere. He can answer our prayers in our showers and in our bathroom and as we travel in our cars. But there is something about taking our problems to the temple. They are built so that we can take our problems to the temple and give God a place to manifest himself to us. Jacob saw a ladder between heaven and earth. And we often use that imagery in describing temples, that they are a connecting spot. They are where heaven and earth are the closest together, and that we build them so that God can manifest himself to us. Let me take you back to the dedication of Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon dedicates that temple, and he says something very similar to what we just read. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, Solomon said, If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence or blasting or mildew or locusts, or if there be caterpillar. Now, I know those are very Old Testament problems, and we could replace them with very modern-day problems. If there is drug abuse, if there is apostasy, if there are hearts broken, if there has been trial and tribulation and health concerns and financial concerns, whatever, if there be problems, and then Solomon continued, if their enemy besieged them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands towards this house. See, there it is. There is something about taking your challenges to the temple and partnering with God in that challenge. Listen to Solomon's plea that if we take our problems, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness, if we take them to the temple, verse 39, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways. That was the original dedication of Solomon's temple. Now watch King Jehoshaphat plead with God and remind him of those very words. If you'll turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20, there came a great multitude against Jehoshaphat, who is king of Judah. And I want you to see the symbolism of this moment. Sometimes you are going to be faced with a great multitude. 
whether that multitude are the forces against your family, temptations, financial challenges, health challenges, emotional challenges, whatever they are, there cometh a great multitude against you. Verse 3, like Jehoshaphat, we will probably fear. But hopefully, also in verse 3, we set ourselves to seek the Lord. Now, we can seek Him in our homes, we can seek Him wherever we are, but there is something about seeking Him in His house. So Jehoshaphat, in verse 5, gathers all of the congregation in the house of the Lord. He brings them to the temple, and then he prays and reminds God, he's going to quote those very verses of the dedicatory prayer that I just read, Jehoshaphat, who is facing an innumerable host and is feared that they may be defeated, prays, starting in verse 6, O Lord God of our fathers, art now thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art thou not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to thy seed Abraham, thy friend forever? And they dwell therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, now he's going to quote the dedicatory prayer, meaning, Lord, this building was dedicated with these words, quote, verse 9, if when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, We stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our afflictions, then thou wilt hear and help. See how he just goes back to that dedicatory plea? If we bring our problems to this temple, you've promised to hear and help. And then he prays the prayer of so many righteous Latter-day Saints in our day. Verse 12 whether drugs have come into the life of a child or someone is sick and in the hospital or there's a plague or a pandemic or some, a loss of a job, something that we feel powerless against, we pray, verse 12, O our God, wilt not thou judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do but our eyes are upon thee. I know so many of you have prayed that very prayer to God. When a company came against you or your family, you took your challenges to the temple. I don't know what to do, Lord. I don't know where to go, but here I am. Here I am in thy house pleading for thy help. Now, verse 15, listen to the Lord's response. He says, Hearken all ye Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. I think what he's saying is, when we bring our problems into the Lord's house, we involve Him in the solution. We partner with Him. They become God's problems as well as our problems. We team up with heaven. And the Lord says, the battle is not yours, but God's. Now, how he fights that battle in each one of our lives, he gets to decide. Sometimes he cures the cancer and sometimes he helps us deal with it. 
Sometimes he solves the financial problems, and sometimes he helps us deal with it. But we partner with God in the temple. We build these temples to give us a place to hear his voice and receive his help. That's blessing number one. Now, going back to the dedicatory prayer of Kirtland, so let's go back to Doctrine and Covenants 109. Let's get to a second blessing. Again, one that is very near and dear to my heart. Starting in verse 12, the Lord says, That thy glory may rest down upon thy people, and upon this house which we now dedicate to thee, that it may be sanctified and consecrated to be holy, and that—here we go, ready? This is what really hits my heartstring that thy holy presence may be continually in this house. We build a house for God to dwell in. We can't go to his house yet. So he builds a house here on our earth, and his holy presence is there. And then verse 13, that all people who shall enter upon the threshold of this, the Lord's house, may feel thy power. And feel constrained to acknowledge that thou hast sanctified it, and that it is thy house, a place of thy holiness. In other words, we get to go home for a brief moment. Mike and I spend our days with college students, many of whom are far away from home. And it's fun to hear them tell stories of, I went home for the weekend. And can you imagine after a long journey being away from home and the struggles of life and college life, and then you just get to what happens when you walk across the threshold of your house and you feel that you're home? Let me tell you a story that illustrates to me why we build temples. My daughter, Brittany, who is now 27 years old, was seven years old when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped. Back in 2002, a 14-year-old girl here in Salt Lake City, Utah, was kidnapped in the middle of the night by a 50-year-old man who wanted her as a second wife. He broke into their home, put a knife to her throat, even though her sister was in the same room, and took her. He took her up to the mountains near Salt Lake and did horrible things to that young girl. And now all of a sudden, my little girl no longer feels safe in her own bedroom, even with her sister there. And I can't imagine the terror that that must have brought into that, the heart of that seven-year-old little girl. Later that night, she woke up in a panic, grabbed a pillow and a blanket, and crept into mom and dad's room and slept on the floor next to my side of the bed. In the morning, I woke up, and not knowing she was there, I stepped on my little girl. The next morning, I stepped on her again. By the third morning, I began looking for her. Because every single night for the whole nine months that Elizabeth Smart was gone, every single night, at some point in the middle of the night, that little girl woke up in a panic grabbed a pillow and a blanket, and crept into mom and dad's room and slept on the floor next to her father. I began to ask, why that spot? And my first thought was that it was furthest away from the door, and that if an intruder came into our house, the intruder would get to her last. But it became very clear to me that that is not why Brittany was choosing that spot. And then an overwhelming 
feeling came into my heart, and I knew why we built temples. The reason Brittany slept right there on that spot was the place she always felt safest was next to her father. Next to her father, all of those concerns went away. And I knew why we build temples. For one brief moment, I get to go into that house and sleep next to my father, so to speak. I get to go be with him in his house. And I'm safe and I don't have to worry about anything else because he's there. I know we do ordinance work and we get married and we do a lot of wonderful things in the temple, but one of the reasons we should go there is to just be with our Father. I don't have to worry about all the cares of the world here, and that's why we build temples. That story just makes me pause. I don't know what that's like. I don't have a daughter. I don't know what that would be like as a father from that perspective and how that how they would feel like so scared of what's going on in the world. So I, I think in another aspect, because the world is so uncertain, that connection to holiness matters more now than ever. And yet when I read the Old Testament, they had those same kind of concerns. They were really scared about these big empires that were always kind of going across their land and what's going to happen to my family and my crops and am I going to live? So... I guess there is no safe space as far as when it comes to what time period we live in. Whether you're in Joseph's time or our time, everybody has their their challenge. And everyone needs a sanctuary. Yeah. Everyone needs a safe place to go and be with the one person in this universe that makes everything okay in, in the end. Yeah. Now, going back to the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, Sidney Rigdon gets up gives a talk, and in it he reads Psalm 96 and Psalm 24. And for years I pondered why he read those psalms, and what did it have to do with the temple? So, Psalm 96 reads, Sing unto the Lord a new song, sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. And then the rest of the psalm talks about that he's going to come in to this space and that it will be established, meaning the temple, and it will not be moved, and he will judge the people righteously. Now that's verse 10. Now the early Christians had access to verse 10 that read a little bit differently, and it said something like this that he, meaning God, shall judge the people righteously from the tree. You see in the first temple, there was a tree in the Holy of Holies. And at the end of Revelation, John puts the tree back into the Holy of Holies. And the tree is a beautiful symbol. We've talked about it with 1 Nephi 8 and 11. It's a symbol for God. It's a symbol for God's son. It's a symbol for God the Father's wife. It's a symbol for the connection of family think in terms of 1 Nephi 8, it was sweet above all that was sweet. It was white to exceed the whiteness of anything I had before beheld. That tree is the thing that makes us the most happy. It is the love of God. Yeah. And by the way, Bryce, I'm reading right now Symposium, and it's the story of what is the greatest power on earth? 
And, you know, regardless of what you think about Plato or the symposium or Greek literature, I read this stuff, Bryce, and I see truth in it. That love is the greatest force that causes someone to go and defend your city to the death or work all day in the hot sun in the field and then come home. That love is this glue that binds us together. Why do I do what I do? It's because I love my wife and because I love my children and I love my family. And that really is a powerful, motivating thing. And so I see that in Psalm 96, but I also see this quest for what is ground zero. And I think it's it's interesting that we talk about this today because it's the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, roughly this time period. And that's an event that we we all know what was going on on that Tuesday. And I think for the ancient Israelites, ground zero for them is under the ark, that stone in the Holy of Holies. The term that's used in the Old Testament is, where is the foundation stone? Because the creation was where they found ground zero. And they would have a festival where they would portray the creation, and then they would talk about order, and then they would ceremonially enthrone, wash, and anoint their king or queen. And if their king or queen couldn't come to that city, they would have a stand-in couple do this, and they would represent the king and queen being enthroned and washed and anointed and clothed. And after they did this recreation, they would make covenants. And this is Psalm 24. Psalm 24, 3 through 6 contains what many call an entrance liturgy, or what Donald Perry calls a temple entrance hymn. And there's another scholar by the name of Moshe Weinfeld, and he says that this is the instructions for people who are visiting the temple, and or what I'll basically call temple worthiness questions. I mean, if you look at Psalm 24, this is in essence what it means to come into God's presence. And so the questions here are, who shall ascend to the mountain of the Lord, and then who will stand in his holy place? And so let's look at Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into vanity nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. And then verse 7, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now in some other literature from the ancient Near East, another version uh, from the neighbors of the Israelites read like this, Lift up your heads, O you gods. And the idea was that as the Israelites were led in a processional, they would come in procession with the ark and they would place the ark in the Holy of Holies and the king and queen would be anointed and washed in those things and they would ask that the Lord's presence would come to them. And they covenanted that they would have what verse 4 says, clean hands and a pure heart, so that they, verse 6, could seek his face. And I think the purpose of the priesthood is in conjunction with the purpose of the temple to bring us back to the King of glory. In fact, that's what verse eight of Psalm 24 says, who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And who is the King of glory? Verse 10, 
He is the Lord of hosts. And so I see these Psalms that are Old Testament Psalms that scholars say, hey, this is the temple. These are temple processional hymns that they would sing to invite God's presence, and it's associated with the temple, and it's associated with the dramatization of the recreation of the cosmos. They would literally, in drama fashion, portray the creation. And it's not just the Jews doing this. Um, The Babylonians are doing this. They call it the Kitu festival. They're doing the same thing, and the Egyptians are doing this too. Like All these cultures are doing this because the creation was where they found ground zero. Ground zero could be your relationship to God and bringing your family to that space. And Joseph, I think, is laying the foundation here in Kirtland, and he's going to expand upon it later when we get to Nauvoo, where he teaches very specifically to the saints and very clearly that we're binding families together and we're doing this in the temple. And so to me, Bryce, Psalm 24 and Psalm 96 are really good verses to tie in what you're doing with the dedicatory prayer of Solomon in the old temple. And that's really the first temple in the Bible, right, to this temple in this dispensation. And we're kind of pulling on the thread from antiquity, and we're tying it to the thread of today. Yeah. Well, let's jump back into the dedicatory prayer and add another reason why we build temples. I love those first two. Let's do one more. Verse 14, do thou grant, Holy Father, that all those who shall worship in this house may be taught words of wisdom out of the best books that they may seek learning even by study and also by faith, that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. In other words, the house of the Lord is a house of instruction. We need to go to the temple to be taught. We need to understand that the greatest lessons of life are taught in the temple. Now, the temple and the scriptures go hand in hand. If you think about what happens in the temple, what gets held up numerous times, there's a relationship between temple and scripture. But we need to think of the temple in terms of a place I go to be taught. Now, back in section 97, when the Jackson County Saints were given an out to the persecution, if they were to build a temple, the Lord revealed a purpose of the temples there that, again, is intriguing. If you'll go back to section 97, he said, this is verse 13, for a place of thanksgiving for all saints and for a place of instruction for all those who are called to the work of the ministry in their several callings and offices that they may be perfected in the understanding of their ministry, in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in things pertaining to the kingdom of God on earth. If you want to be a better church member, if you want to be a better bishop or young women's leader, if you want to be a better primary teacher, if you want to be a better deacon or teacher or priest, if you want to be better at your calling in the church, we should go to the temple and be instructed. And I would really push that. I think it's more than just limited to church. If you want to be a better father, if you want to be a better husband, go to the temple and let him teach you. Can I just give two or three illustrations, things I have been taught? Now, I'm going to share examples that are clearly taught in the scriptures so that I can illustrate openly and not speak of things that I shouldn't speak of. 
So let me illustrate some of the things that God has taught me in the temple. In the temple, we are reminded of the symbolism of Adam and Eve. And I think often of Jennifer and myself, that I am Adam and Jennifer is Eve. And Eve was taken from Adam's rib. And I have pondered that a great deal, that my wife symbolically was taken from my rib. And I've asked myself, what is the Lord trying to teach me about being a husband? Number one, I realize that my rib is at my side. If God had taken Eve from Adam's foot, that would have placed the woman below the man. And there are men who place their wives below them and step on them. If God had taken Eve from Adam's skull, that would have placed the woman above the man. And there are women who place themselves above their husbands. I need to walk side by side in all things with my wife, always at my side, always at her side, never in front, never behind, never above, never below. You watch them leave the Garden of Eden. Adam does not lead her out. They walk side by side. Number two, my rib is closest to my heart. And I hear Heavenly Father telling me every single time I go, you put her closer to your heart than anything else in your life. Closer to your heart than your children, your students, your occupation, your hobbies. She is to be at your side, under your wing. You take care of her. And then one of my favorites, I've often pondered, what is the purpose of a rib cage? It is to protect those vital organs, including the heart. One day I was sitting in the temple and Heavenly Father made it very, very clear to me that my most important responsibility is to be the rib cage that protects my wife's heart. I am to protect her. When my wife and I got married, she placed her heart in my hands for safekeeping. No one loves her more than I do. And no one can hurt her more than I can. In the vulnerability of marriage, she trusts me. I could hurt her more than anyone else on earth, but I am the rib cage that must keep her heart safe. If anyone throws a dart at my wife, I'm the one that steps up and takes it, and it better not be me that throws the dart. Now, all of those wonderful lessons I have been taught in the temple from a God and some symbolism that is trying to teach me how to be a better husband. Can I just briefly do one more? As you look at pictures of ceiling rooms, you'll often notice in those pictures that there is carved into the carpet a circle around the altar. Most temples have it. Not all, but most temples have carved into the carpet a circle around the altar. There's a ton of these circles and squares. Yeah. And they intersect all the time. So one day... I'm watching my daughter get married, and all of a sudden I realized 
that she was inside that circle with her husband, not me. I was the next circle. The room kind of forms a next circle. So she had this inner circle with her husband and then an outer circle with her parents and her friends and her family. And then the temple itself was another circle, members of the church. And then outside the temple was the world. And I realized that therein are a series of circles that should show our highest priorities. So when the ceiling was over, I waited around and I hugged my daughter and I pointed out that circle. And I said, I wasn't in that circle with you. McKay was. And now McKay is the one who you should turn to and solve your problems. I'm in the next circle. If you two need help, come out to the next circle. But don't bring people into that inner circle that don't belong there. And mom and dad don't belong in that inner circle. Strangers, friends, don't belong in that inner circle. My wife is the only one in that inner circle. Now, we've since added some children, and they're now in that inner circle as well. But there was a tremendous lesson. I was taught about being a husband by some carvings into the carpet. Let the temple be a place of instruction. Let the colors and the people and the elevations and the lights and the structure, let him teach you everything to be successful in every aspect of your life. I truly believe I'm a better teacher because of things I've learned in the temple. I believe doctors could be better doctors by what they were taught in the temple. Let it be a house of instruction. For me, my first experience in the temple was a springboard to get me to ask all kinds of questions. And I like that it isn't always explained to you. Uh, my family wasn't able to go. And so I was kind of alone. Like my uncle took me. He was like the closest person who could go with me. And I remember just thinking the whole time, because I had to go all the way to Los Angeles and I lived near Oakland. And the whole way driving back to Oakland, I thought, what did I just see? And if you're someone who's listening right now and you're thinking, I want to learn more about these things, there are so many books, but one that I just think is worth your time if you're someone interested is Matthew Brown has written a few good ones. One of my favorites is Symbols in Stone, and another one is The Gate of Heaven. I would just recommend, those are probably two of the top of many books, but the idea that Bryce is talking about with the circle and the square is such a deep concept. And the Lord just puts it in front of you in the hopes that you'll think about it and that you'll ask questions. And I love how you're sitting there looking at this and there's your daughter and then you just get a flood of information and then you share it with her and you, and you teach her about it. So that's, that's beautiful. And by the way, yeah, it's everywhere. The, it's everywhere. the square and circle thing is happening all over the place. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's, it's in every corner of the temple. Let me throw in one more, one more beautiful reason we build temples as illustrated in the dedication. Starting in verse 24, we ask the Holy Father to establish the people that shall worship and honorably hold a name and standing in this thy house to all generations and for all eternity. So I would imagine there's a reference there to the recommend. I hold a name in his house. Now here's the blessing. That no weapon formed against them shall prosper. 
that he who diggeth a pit for them shall fall into the same himself, that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people, upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. In other words, it becomes a house of protection. And again, that doesn't mean everyone who goes to the temple is never going to get in a car accident or never going to have a problem. There is purposes of mortality that we need to have opposition in all things in this mortality, but there is a divine protection that comes into our life when we are clothed in the robes of the temple. When we wear the temple, we are protected. I love this quotation from Boyd K. Packer that kind of illustrates exactly what we're talking about here. Boyd K. Packer said in his book, The Holy Temple, no work is more of a protection to this church than temple work. No work is more spiritually refining. No work we do gives us more power. No work requires a higher standard of righteousness. Our labors in the temple cover us with a shield and a protection, both individually and as a people. It is a house of protection. And I believe that that shield and protection can flow over my children while they are young. My covenants can become a shield and a protection over my home, and that protects us from evil. So those are some wonderful reasons why we build temples as illustrated in the dedication. Now, what I love is how this dedication ends. It ends by Joseph taking a lot of problems to the Lord. For example, in verse 47, he prays for the Jackson County saints who have been kicked out. He prays that the Lord break off their yoke, that this yoke of affliction be taken. They have been greatly oppressed. They've been afflicted. Verse 48, their hearts flow out with sorrow, with grievous burdens. So I think symbolically what the Lord is saying here is when you carry a yoke of affliction, when you are greatly oppressed or afflicted, when your hearts flow out with sorrow because of your grievous burdens, take it to the temple so that in verse 49, the Lord can bear this affliction. How long, O Lord, wilt thou suffer this people to bear this affliction? In other words, help us lift it. It's almost like Joseph's modeling what we're to do. Yeah. In fact, Bryce, verse 50, really speaks to me because he even prays for the mobbers, yes. which is such an interesting thing that he put that in the prayer, because I think that would be really difficult to pray for your enemies. But yet that's part of what Jesus is asking us yeah. to do. And notice he not only prays for the Jackson County saints, he prays for the mob. Look at verse 54. He prays for the nations of the earth. May those principles which were so honorably and nobly defended, namely the constitution of our land by our fathers, be established forever. Ironic that he would pray for that before the Missouri conflict. That he's praying for nations. Verse 55, remember the kings. And then he prays, verse 59, for the other stakes that will come into the church. In verse 62, he prays for the children of Jacob. I like that he prays that the Jerusalem may begin to be redeemed. And I think there's a couple redemptions of Jerusalem. There's that they have their land, 
But then the real redemption to me is when they're converted to who Jesus is. And so we're kind of in that first phase where they have the land. And there's a lot of people that don't want them to have the land, but they do. To me, I read verse 62, Bryce, and I see Joseph reading the Old Testament, taking some of these things literally in some of these passages, that there really is to be a Jerusalem and that the Jews really are to be gathered. Yeah. I love in verse 65, he prays for those of Jacob that are remnants that have been cursed and smitten and that they be converted and that the fullness of the gospel be given them. Verse 66, he prays that we may lay down the weapons of bloodshed and cease from rebellions. Boy, this is just an example of what the temple is supposed to be in all of our lives. Verse 68, he prays for Joseph. Remember, this is a prayer given by God to Joseph Smith, and God includes in that, remember thy servant Joseph Smith, Jr. Remember me. And not only that, but look at verse 71. This intrigues me. Remember, O Lord, the presidents even all the presidents of thy church. Right there in the dedicatory prayer, remember all the presidents of thy church. Now, I would imagine that meant the horizontal presidents, the presidents of the quorums. But I wonder if there's also an element of vertical. I wonder if Joseph was praying for Russell Nelson. Bless the presidents of the church because they are the presidents of the temples. Not the temple president assigned to a specific temple, but the prophet is the one who oversees all the sealing keys. My grandfather was a sealer in the Jordan River Temple, and my wife and I wanted to be married in the Salt Lake Temple. So guess from whom we needed permission for a sealer in the Jordan River Temple to perform an ordinance in the Salt Lake Temple? Neither temple president could give that permission, but the president of all the temples gave that permission. We received permission from the president of the church for him to perform that ordinance. Bless the presidents of the church. I think that's significant. And then look at verse 78. I think this symbolizes why we have temples. Oh, hear, oh, hear, oh, hear us, O oh Lord, and answer these petitions. Beautiful dedicatory prayer. Yeah. I think also it's really good to note that many people thought that this was the culmination that perhaps the Lord could even be coming now because of the experiences they had with the visitations of angels and so forth. This dedication happened on March 27th, which was a Sunday. And between the 27th of March and April 3rd was an eventful week. So two days later on the 29th, the prophet administers the ordinance of the washing of the feet to more brethren. And then the next day on the 30th, they attend to the washing of the feet and the sacrament on a Wednesday, followed by another Pentecostal outpouring in which many of them spoke in tongues and angels appeared, and some of the brethren talked about seeing the Savior. The next day was a Thursday, and they had another temple dedication because some people couldn't get in the building. There were just so many people that they couldn't all fit. And then on Sunday, April 3rd, on this day, is the date that section 110 occurred. And so Joseph records that he attended a meeting in the Lord's house and he assisted the other presidents of the church in seating the congregation. And then 
became an attentive listener to the preaching from the stand. And Thomas B. Marsh and David Patton, these are two apostles. They spoke in the forenoon, and then in the afternoon, Joseph says, I assisted the other presidents in distributing the Lord's Supper, receiving it from the twelve whose privilege it was to officiate in the sacrament this day. Then, after having performed this service, I retired to the pulpit, the veils being dropped, I bowed myself with Oliver Cowdery in solemn and silent prayer. After rising from prayer, the following vision was opened to both of us. So that's kind of the context of what happened between these two Sabbath days. This week, between the 27th of March and April 3rd, was an eventful week. Many things happened that were significant, that weren't necessarily recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants. But I'm grateful, Bryce, that this section has been recorded because I think it does have tie-in to the mission of the church. I think you and I have talked about this before, about, well, what's the mission of the church? And perhaps even the mission of the church can be tied to who these individuals are. I think this section is a great symbol of who we are and what every prophet throughout time has hoped and waited for us to do in the latter days. So Joseph receives four very significant visitors into the Kirtland Temple and coming to the church. The first in verse 2 is the Savior himself. He comes mainly in verse 7 to accept the house. By the way, I really like that where he says, I've accepted this house. I have accepted thy house. Now, I love that because was it perfect? Do you think there were any blemishes in the walls? Do you think there were anything Joseph was like, okay, that's not quite perfect, but it's the best we could do? And I can imagine Joseph was a little bit nervous. This isn't the building we really wanted to build, but it's the best one we could build. And the Savior says, you know what? It's good. I accept it. It cost him everything. I accept this house. And I love that symbolism that when we've done our very best, even though there are flaws in the walls and it's not the building we had hoped to build, the Savior says, it's good enough. I accept it. And I will be here. I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. And now verse 8 is a beautiful little condition. I will appear unto my servants and speak unto them with mine own voice, if my people will keep my commandments and do not pollute this holy house. We control how much God speaks to the prophet. If we keep his commandments and holy the temples and not allow them to be polluted, more and more revelation will come. That's the promise the Savior made. I will appear unto my servants and speak unto them with mine own voice, if my people will keep my commandments and do not pollute this holy house. And and Bryce, you and I have talked about this before with section 93, verse 1. And I think it's just important to reiterate that we don't force spiritual things. So while I believe that the Lord will appear to his servants, I, I'm not going to make that demand of God. Like, God, here's here's all the list of commands I'm keeping now. Show yourself to me. And so I think there's there's always that balance. And that's why I love the speech the Savior gave to Nicodemus, where he likened the spirit to the wind. And like, I certainly don't control the wind, but I can experience it. Um, and I also like the idea that ritually, I come to Jesus ritually in the temple. So there's, to me, lots of ways to read verse eight, but it's beautiful. It really is. So now let's get to the other three visitors. After the Savior accepts the house, in 11, 12, and 13, three major significant moments happen. First, in verse 11, comes Moses. Then in verse 12, comes Elias. Now, we're not exactly sure who Elias was. Was that his name? Was that his title? But what he brings is very significant. 
Elias brings the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. And if you want to nerd out, we do put some stuff in the show notes where you can go and look at different commentators. There's all kinds of approaches to this, because if we're talking about Elias being the Greek rendition of this name, then it's just the Greek version of Elijah. But then you have the problem with verse 13, where Elijah appears. So it's probably not redundant, Elijah appearing twice. So then you go, well, then who is it? I think a key thing to say is it's a forerunner, someone who prepares the way, and Elias could be anyone who prepares the way. But if you're one of those people like I am, where you're like, okay, what are some possibilities here? We put all that stuff in the show notes. I think, Bryce, for the purpose of this podcast, we're just keeping it pretty simple. Yeah, but and we're going to focus on what he brings, not who, right. but what he brings. So we're going to come back to that in just a minute. And then in verse 13, the moment that has been prophesied for years. If you go back and read the last two verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, I will send you Elijah. When Moroni appears to Joseph Smith, eventually four times, he repeats this four times, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah. Jesus told the Nephites in 3rd Nephi, I will send you Elijah. That promise appears in the Old Testament. It appears in every book of Scripture pretty much. And here it is. This is Elijah coming to bring the sealing keys, which will seal ordinances, families, people, marriages. We can seal for eternity. So let me see if we can wrap all three of these together in a significant who are we in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you go back to the Old Testament, Heavenly Father chooses one person and says, you are my representative. You are the way I'm going to bless my whole family. Abraham, you're that guy. Abraham, you need to make my name known in all the world and go into all the strange places and bless them with the priesthood. The Abrahamic covenant really in gist is the responsibility to bless all families of the earth with the gospel, with salvation, and eternal life. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Go bless all the families of the earth. There's an interesting prophecy in 1 Nephi chapter 15, where Nephi says that it was clearly understood that that would be fulfilled in the latter days, when all families would be blessed. So now what we find is Elias restoring the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. And I read that to mean that once again, God has chosen a group of people to say, you are in charge of taking the gospel to all the earth. And here it is, section 110, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been given the responsibility to bless all the families of all the earth with the gospel, with salvation, and with eternal life. So we need to do two things in order to fulfill that commission. We've got to gather the living families, and that means we need Moses' keys. We need the keys that Moses restored to gather Israel to the ordinances of the house of the Lord. We've got to do missionary work and gather Israel. That's number one. Then we need to seal everybody. And if people died before we could gather them to the gospel— We need to seal them anyway, and hence we need Moses and Elijah's keys to gather and to seal. 
It is our responsibility to bless all the families of all the earth, including the spirit world, with the gospel, salvation, and eternal life. Now, we often speak in terms of the spirit of Elijah. These visitors, Elijah's keys, are not just permissions to do it. They are charges and calls and commissions to do it. We are called to seal the dead to their families. But we are also called and commissioned to preach the gospel. We should speak in terms of the spirit of Moses as much as we speak in terms of the spirit of Elijah, that we are called to preach the gospel. There should be something deep inside our core that calls us to gather the families of the earth and to seal them eternally. Those three visitors symbolize what we are all about in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are to bless all the families of all the earth. That means we've got to gather them and seal them. So we need Elias's keys, Elijah's keys, and Moses' keys. And here in the Kirtland Temple on April 3rd, 1836, which I believe was a Passover day, Elijah came and visited the house of Israel. Yeah, Bryce, I think we could say that it's the Passover week. I'm just going to read this. It's been claimed that this expectation of Elijah coming during Passover would have occurred in Jewish homes at exactly the same time Elijah appeared. And this needs a little bit of correction. This is Stephen Ricks. He says, Passover is observed for eight days. And in 1836, the first day of Passover, the day of the Passover meal, lasted from sundown on Friday, April 1st, until sundown on Saturday, April 2nd. Elijah appears on the afternoon of Easter Sunday, the 3rd of April, more than a full day after the Passover feast occurred, but clearly during Passover week. I think a good thing to say would be to say that Elijah came during Passover week. I see this as significant because the Jews would celebrate Passover. They'd set the table, and what would they do at the table? They would set a place for Elijah, and they would leave the door open. So every single year— that the Jews were celebrating Passover, there was a hope and an expectation yes. that Elijah would join them. Because it's tied to the Messiah coming, and it's tied to all the things that they expect, like this world where everything is fair and there's justice and the Messiah is to reign. And so we sit in this tradition, and we also make that claim, according to section 110. I love this commentator that said this, the world will be saved in family units. Since salvation centers in the Abrahamic covenant, to fail to enter into that covenant through marriage and the eternal sealing of family units is to squander the purpose of mortality. The earth was created to facilitate the natural and proper love between a man and a woman. In marriage, they're to become one flesh. And all of this is that the earth might answer the end of its creation. Simply stated, salvation is a family affair. And so in subsequent years, Joseph Smith learned how this authority restored by Elijah applied, as well as not only to the people he was teaching, but to our kindred dead. And moreover, he learned that they, after the gospel was preached to them in the world of spirits, could by proxy have their ordinances of salvation performed for them in the house of the Lord. And so these keys are being put back on earth, 
And then when we get to Nauvoo, Joseph's going to teach the saints more about this. My take on this, Bryce, is I think the Lord is turning the key in Joseph's mind. We have the beginnings of this with the January vision where he sees Alvin. You and I both know how he felt about Alvin. That had to cause him to seriously reflect on how is this possible? If everything in Christianity says, I'm not baptized, I'm not saved, and if we read some of these texts in the New Testament, at least as how Joseph understood them, I think in January of this year, he's really thinking about this, and now we have the keys brought back. Yep. Now we have an assignment. All of us, everyone, saints in Joseph's day, saints in 2021, saints in every dispensation, we have the assignment. Gather Israel and seal them as families. And so Joseph will say in Nauvoo, this is section 128, let us therefore as a church and as a people and as Latter-day Saints offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Let us present in his holy temple when it is finished a book containing the records of all our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. Let's present this book to God that contains the sealed, finished records of families that have been brought to God and sealed for eternity. Now, if they live in Africa, let's go get them. If they live in Asia, let's go get them. Let's use the keys of Moses to bring them to the covenants of the gospel. And then we're going to use the keys of Elijah to seal them and their family for time and all eternity. Here at the University of Utah Institute, I teach the mission prep class. I love being around those young men and young women who are preparing to preach a gospel. That spirit of Moses is alive today. It is calling them to go out and serve and to preach so that families can be sealed for time and all eternity. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And with that... We thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we talk about section 111 through 114. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.